This is The Lydia Project, Conversations with Christian Women. Our name is inspired by the life-changing conversation that Lydia had with Paul, recorded in Acts 16. On this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of women whose lives have also been impacted by the truth of the gospel. Your hosts, Tori Walker and Taryn Hayes, hope that you too will be challenged and inspired by how the gospel truths are being worked out in the lives of their guests, ordinary women who serve an extraordinary God. Today, your host is Tori Walker. Well, Claire, welcome to The Lydia Project. It is so great to be able to have a chat with you today. Um, I mentioned just before we started recording that I'm standing in my walk-in wardrobe because it's the quietest room in the house. Where are you? Well, I'm sitting at my desk with a jumper on, unlike you with a T-shirt on. It's cold here in Sydney. And sitting at my desk looking out, I have a wonderful desk that looks out over the canopy of the National Park here. So it's very picturesque. All right, well, I'd love to start with the question that I love asking people because I love hearing the answer to, and that is, how did you come to faith in Christ? Well, great question, and and what a great place to start, obviously, because otherwise none of us would be here doing this, would we? I didn't grow up in a Christian home. My first boyfriend was a Christian. So I was one of the, I've since discovered that the people at school with me, the Christians at school voted me as the person in our year least likely to become a Christian. So if you can imagine someone who is fiercely anti-Christian and into sort of pretty wild, the sort of girl that your parents didn't want you to hang out with, that was who I was. Anyway, this first boyfriend, he was a Christian, he told me the gospel and it was a very short-lived romance, but he stuck in there with me for six years, sharing the gospel with me as my life progressively fell apart. And kept saying to me, Claire, your life doesn't have to be like this. God loves you. You can be forgiven. And eventually he took me along to hear John Chapman speak at church one night, a quite well-known evangelist. I now know. I didn't at the time. And I sat there realising, hearing John Chapman speak about Jesus and just realising I have a problem. I mean, there were things in my life that I was absolutely ashamed of. And I realised that God knew about them and that I needed to be forgiven. And because of Jesus' death for me and resurrection, I could be forgiven. I went home that night thinking to myself, I can't possibly become a Christian. I've built my whole life on not being a Christian. But in the early hours of the morning, as I sat on my bed reading my Bible, I realized this really it was true and the only way and that God loved me and I walked into work the next morning and the girl there turned around she said wow what happened to you this weekend and I said I've become a Christian so she could immediately see just the difference and it really was an experience of just the weight of guilt taken away wow that is incredible isn't it wonderful and a huge change in my life as you might guess from that and in God's kindness since then two of my sisters have become Christians and and we continue to pray for the rest of the family. Obviously your opposition when you were a teenager was partly lifestyle but was it also like a a big sort of intellectual opposition this is sort of who I am I don't believe in that and absolutely so so I had I mean I gave the Christians at school a terribly hard time really hard time and in fact the night that I went along to hear John Chapman speak two of the Christians that I'd persecuted at school came bounding through the crowd and said Claire it's great to see you here I mean that like their grace and forgiveness was a demonstration to me just of the love of God 
you know, and at that point I hadn't even become a Christian. I was just there in my hippie clothes and bare feet and then came to Christ later that night. So their love and just the faithfulness of this first boyfriend who with no encouragement, I tell you, absolutely no encouragement, for six years just kept loving me, sharing the gospel with me, being there and putting up with me really saying, I'm not interested. I just want you as a friend. I don't want any of that religious stuff. But he kept, he kept persevering. And in God's amazing kindness, he changed my heart. Jesus Isn't changed my heart. Not yes. <laughs> <laughs> but what, I mean, gosh, perseverance to stick with sharing the gospel and inviting you to events for six years when you'd obviously said no and given him a hard time and that's great isn't it well it's an encouragement to me because it says you just do not know what god is doing a friend said that person is only one decision away from trusting in christ you know it so is true. just that one decision it is that it's turning from sin and trusting in Christ, repenting and believing. Actually, I've just been reading the Chapo book and I can't remember the name of it, the one where lots of people tell their stories about Chapo. David Mansfield wrote it. Oh, it's so good. And it just reminds I mean, hearing your story, it's just so true of just so many people just seem to grasp the clarity of the gospel when he preached. And yep. so many people have become Christians with him being one of those steps along the way to their conversion. It's, it's a fantastic book, actually. Highly recommend it. You should read it. <laughs> I should. And I often think with people like Chapo, when we arrive in glory, there'll be so many people who will have him to thank. Like, you know, yeah. he's been a servant in the Lord's hands and yeah, great, great ministry and someone to give great thanks for. And of course, to pray for those that we know who are doing similar sort of work. God works through his word going out. Yep, absolutely. Well, let's move on. Claire, what does your family look like? Well, they're very good looking, of course. <laughs> of course. And getting older, I might say, too. There's me and Rob, who is my husband. We live here in Australia. We have one child, an adult son, who lives in Edinburgh, and he's married. And actually, one of the sad things about the coronavirus is that we were meant to be going over there in June to see him. And of course, we can't. So he's an only child and he's married to an American who's an only child. And if they wanted to come here, they couldn't because she's not a citizen or a resident. And if they wanted to go to America, they couldn't because he's not a citizen or a resident. So basically, they're stuck in the UK. So hopefully we'll get to see them sometime soon. But I mean, praise the Lord for FaceTime and text messages and that sort of thing. But certainly the world is feeling a bigger place at the moment. There's so many kind of unique situations, aren't there? I mean, that's just one where they are kind of stuck in the UK and can't go to their home countries. It's made me think about parents who sent their sons off to war with no communication and just never knowing, not knowing if they were going to come back. It's just given me, I think, a greater appreciation. I felt it on Anzac Day of just here again is the world dealing with something that's huge and so much bigger than us where we don't know the end of it, but we do know that God's in control. But just the separation and, and, and the anxieties that come with that. Even for, for unbelievers, I suspect, this Anzac Day had a poignancy that it hasn't had before. Mm, I agree. So, Claire, I don't know how much isolation has affected your life, but what kind of ministry are you involved in at the moment? Well, it's interesting because my life is, a lot of my life is spent sitting at my desk. So, in a sense, everybody else is doing what I normally do. And interestingly, 
I'm not doing what I normally do, which is that my elderly father lives here in Sydney. He is on his own, lives by himself. And I've been his contact with the world. So I'm going up there every second day to go walking with him to do his shopping. So I've my life is in reverse to everybody else's life. Everybody else's cars are sitting in the driveway and they're wearing their tracky dacks all day. And I'm now out and about more than I normally are. The other thing that I, well, two other things that I do, uh, I'm on a lot of committees and that work is continuing obviously but instead of going to committee meetings I'm doing it on my computer screen. The other thing that I do is speaking at conferences and so on and they've all been cancelled. So my diary is empty which is slightly disconcerting. (laughs) Have any of them been pushed to the end of the year? No, I think because they're larger conferences those conferences tend to be well they tend to have a particular time of year when they happen but also They tend to have to work around school holidays and exams and HSC. And also, I don't think we're going to be having conferences this year. I can't see it happening myself. It'll be quite Mm. some time before we're allowed to have over 100 people in a closed Mm. space for a prolonged period of time. Mm. So I can't see it happening myself until who knows when. Yeah, but I mean, I'm not a prophet, so I don't really really know. I'm really just guessing. And I am something of a pessimist. But then again, also, I did start life as a nurse. So I do know something about these things. I just can't see it happening. And I do think the social distancing rules will scale up and down and up and down and up and down, depending on the the rates of uh, spread. I think we've got several rounds of this yet, in my view. You're on a lot of committees now. Is that because you feel like your gifts are kind of suited to committees or you think they're really valuable or you really kind of want to progress the work of the organisations that you're on? I'm on a bit of a mission to get women involved in committee work. I think women have things to contribute. Typically, it's something that women don't tend to put their hand up for. Sometimes it's just logistical things like the meeting times are wrong or the location is conflicts with other responsibilities. Or if you have spare time, you'd rather be involved in ministry. But I do think committees are a form of ministry, which is you need clear-thinking, gospel-hearted people on committees if committees are going to keep doing the good work that they're meant to be doing. There's a a danger, I think, of people sort of saying, well, committees aren't really important, so I'm not going to get involved in that. And what happens is that organisations go off track and they lose the gospel. So I do see it as part of my faithfulness to Christ, really. Also, too, I mean, look, I think some people have a temperament that's more suited to committee work than, than other people, so it's obviously not for everyone. But I'm always looking for women who will be suitable to serve on committees and I'm always keen to encourage women with different all sorts of different gifts to be involved you know, whether it's financial expertise or their engineers or teachers or whatever that we use all the gifts that God has given us to serve Christ and committee work is a way of doing that and you know so yeah it's it's tedious and sometimes you sort of think oh really shoot me now if I have to do this for another couple of hours but in terms of promoting Christ it's a good way of serving. Absolutely I I actually wholeheartedly agree but I do think there's a huge difference between a well-run committee and a not so well-run committee. A well-run committee meeting can be encouraging and interesting and productive some others not so much. (laughs) 
Yes, and I've been involved in both. And, you know, I think even then there are ways of helping. So, you know, I think chairing a committee or the culture of a committee is something that needs to be owned by the group in a sense. And, you know, if you're coming together and you're wasting 40% of your time as people shuffle around and arrive late and fiddle with their phones and that sort of thing, then maybe this says more about me than anything else. Then I would say you have an opportunity to have a voice and you use your voice in that way to say, let's try and be as efficient as we can, because that's actually serving Christ. I know you've done quite a bit of work with the roles of men and women and how men and women relate to each other in ministry. How do you see the implications of that for committee work? It depends what the committee is, but I think women gifted by God, they have wisdom and insight. And committee work doesn't tend to be the governing teaching leadership of churches. And so in terms of the the distinctions that you see in scripture, I don't see that there's, for the most part, I I don't want to make a blanket statement, okay, but for the most part, I think committees are a place where women can serve. And, you know, praise the Lord, a lot of the men that I engage with on committee work, they're very keen for women. They want more. It's who can we find, not we don't want them. So I guess that's what I'd be saying, which is use the gifts that you've got. By all means, study the scriptures, understand the differences between men and women, things that we share and the way that we can contribute there. In the New Testament, there weren't parachurch organisations. So many of the things that we have now, they're recent innovations that are often Often several steps removed from the sorts of things that are on view in the New Testament, which is really about the household of God. You know, what we do to get what we do when we come together as God's people, to sit under his word, to love one another, to encourage one another and to make Christ known. So you know. now I don't want to ask you what your favorite committee is, but I do want to ask you about one of the committees that you're on. Well I don't know if you see it as a committee, probably. I know that you're on the editorial panel for the Gospel Coalition Australia. Before you tell me what that involves, tell me a bit about the Gospel Coalition because I know I mean obviously this podcast is hosted by the Gospel Coalition, but not everyone who's listening will know who the Gospel Coalition are and what they're aiming to do. So tell us a bit about that. Wow. Well, the best thing I can suggest is that they go to the Gospel Coalition Australia website, have have a look around there and look at the doctrinal statements and so on. The Gospel Coalition Australia is kind of an offshoot of an organisation that was set up in the US, the Gospel Coalition, which was a way of, in a sense, gathering evangelicals who are committed to biblical faith and the promotion of the gospel, evangelical faith, to bring them together out of their little denominational silos and networks and bring them together so that we have the benefit of that fellowship together, really, so that we can work together to make Christ known and to serve the church. So I mean, I know there are all sorts of networks that are in our Australian church And the Gospel Coalition Australia is a way of helping those different silos talk to one another and resource one another with articles and podcasts and resources. Yeah. And what's your role on the panel? Well, so I'm on the editorial panel, which is headed up by Andrew Moody in Melbourne. And there's just really a bunch of us who 
sort of speak together every couple of weeks on Zoom. So I'm an old hand at Zoom. We speak together. We talk about our oh, current events, things that we've read, books that need to be reviewed, that sort of thing. So we come up with ideas. We also try and identify new writers. So raise up and encourage new writers to, to write material. Confession time. I could do a whole lot more than I do. I confess. I wish I could do more. But having said that, in particular, I'm interested in identifying women writers and encouraging them to write. People write things. They send them to us. We have a look at them. Sometimes we'll have sort of question about, well, what do you think about this? And we'll send it around and sort of have a little talk. We edit things. Yeah. So it really involves, in a sense, keeping your finger on the pulse, seeing what people are thinking about trying to serve Christian people with good evangelical thought-provoking material that's going to help them engage, do their ministry better, engage better with the world, do relationships, anything. Although we don't do cooking. <laughs> There's plenty of other sites for that. There's plenty <laughs> of other sites to do that. I know because I go to them. Right, yeah. Well, that's the thing. You can be quite niche, can't you, on the internet because it's just something for everybody and so yeah I want to go back to the book that you have you only written one book I do know of one book that you've written I've written two books the other book is my PhD thesis which is basically a cure for insomnia so I don't blame you for not knowing about it <laughs> what's the title the title is Pauline communities as scholastic communities a study of the vocabulary of teaching in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus Excellent. It's over 550 pages of the kind of reads like a Greek telephone book. And what was your, in 50 words or less, what was your contribution my to the scholarly world with that one? My elevator pitch. It's really looking at if you were trying to describe what the early Christian communities were as a sociological entity, how would you describe them? Most people working in that field use a comparative approach. So they say, well, it was like a synagogue or it was like a philosophical school or it was like the household, the family. And what I did was I looked at a description given by Edwin Judge, a very eminent historian here in Sydney, who described the early Christian communities as scholastic communities way back in 1960. And the academics didn't really pick it up. And I thought, well, let's test that. So I then looked at, in those four letters, all the verbs involved in educational activities. So everything from teach, to say, to prophesy, to sing, to write, to imitate, very, very broad ranging. There were 56 different verbs and I looked at every occurrence of those verbs in those four letters. And really what comes out is that the whole of the Christian community is involved in this educational enterprise where everyone is a teacher and a learner and God is the head of the community and the only one who doesn't learn. So he is the ultimate teacher. And then we all teach and learn from each other. So we all teach each other. Even the faithful Christian life teaches others how to live. So the whole idea of imitation and modelling. Yeah. So I said, yes, scholastic communities is kind of helpful, but it's also kind of anachronistic. And a better description is... We are learning communities. That's part of my passion, in a sense, which is worked out in my involvement with the Gospel Coalition Australia, which is 
we are to teach each other, to share God's truth with each other in every opportunity that we have by our lives, our words, our songs. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that elevator pitch. It was good. Does that then have crossover with the book that you wrote, which was all about men and women? Now, what was the title of the book? Well, that's called God's Good Design. And so that was first published in 2012 and has just been at last year a revised edition was published that also has a study guide in it so one of the things that people wanted was a way of sort of using it in one-to-one and in just bible study groups so it's now got a study guide in it as well and so is there a crossover between what you learn in your thesis about learning communities with god as the ultimate teacher and how men and women are designed to relate to each other Well, yes, because some of the vocabulary that I looked at and some of the texts that I looked at for my thesis are relevant for the book. So, for example, 1 Timothy 2 and, well, 1 Corinthians 11 in a less obvious way, but 1 Corinthians 14. So, yes, so there was was a bit of overlap. I mean, people often think that actually my PhD was on the men and women stuff, but it wasn't. There's actually two sort of different ponds that I'm paddling in. Right. So back in 2012, when you first published it, it felt like it was certainly in Sydney where I was at the time, it certainly felt like it was a quite a big issue for Christians, how men and women relate, especially with you know questions about Anglican ordination to the priesthood and other denominations doing similar things. Do you think it's still as big an issue for Christians at the moment? Well, if we just wind back to, to your observations. I mean, I think it was a big thing in 2012. I think it's actually been a big thing in the church since at least the 1970s, when the pressure of, of second wave feminism really came to bear on the church. And I don't think it was just in Sydney. It's really been around the world. R- really, there's been a conflict between, an, well, an egalitarian vis- vision of the relationship between men and women where men and women are able to do the same things in ministry. Now, some egalitarians have some distinction in marriage, but certainly in ministry, there's no difference. There's been a conflict between that view and a view that sees certainly equality between men and women, but that men and women in God's design have different responsibilities in the church, even though we're both meant to be involved in, as my thesis, as I was saying with my thesis, teaching and encouraging one another to grow in our knowledge and love of God. I mean, I think it's not just been in Sydney and it's not just been since 2012. It's really been almost all of my adult life, really, since my teenage years and around the world. As long as there's been, in in a sense, where it hasn't been an issue, has been when the egalitarian view has triumphed. That's when it's kind of gone off the agenda because, okay, well, yeah, well, we've looked at that, we've dealt with that, it's now no longer an issue. And when you read the passages in scripture that seem to say something else, you either conclude that they weren't written by the Apostle Paul or they were right then but wrong now, you know, so really responding to a particular culture then that no longer applies now, so therefore they no longer apply. So, yes, and do I think it's still an issue? I think it will continue to be an issue. I think our society really has lost its way when it comes to knowing who we are as God's creatures. I mean, I think in all sorts of ways. I think in terms of the beginnings and the end of life, I think in terms of men and women, what is happening out there in the world is just so contrary to God's vision for human flourishing 
that I think these matters will continue to be talking points or conflict points, things where we are different. And I think it's going to get more and more. I mean, the whole transgender really sort of subjective view of gender identity is entirely at odds with the embodied view of personhood that you see in scripture. And I don't see any indicate. I mean, it will be interesting to see how the coronavirus impacts that social trend, but certainly I can't see it letting up anytime soon. Uh, the, the vision in scripture of who we are as God's creatures, men and women, who receive life from God's hand when life isn't ours to do with what we want, is just so contrary. Mm, and so do you think as the world continues down a path that is so different to the Christian worldview that that will continue to sort of not make inroads but continue to clash with the culture in the church in ways that, you know, within the church then it does raise questions that it mightn't have historically? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I think in all these matters, there's a question, which is, is the Bible true? Is it God's word? Is it authoritative? Can you be confident in what it says? That's really the heart of it. It's really a question about where does the Bible fit in how you know things? Because if what you're listening to are the voices in the church and outside the church that are not submitting to scripture, to God's word, then you will look at the scriptures and you will think, well, that's just plain weird. You know, I'm not going to do that. That can't be right. If the Bible is true, if it's God's word, if it's inspired, if it's authoritative, then the world doesn't submit to that. The distance between the world and us is going to keep growing. I agree. <laughs> and I mean, in some ways, it's an opportunity for Christians to look different, which we're meant to. I think the communication, sometimes we get wrong. As in, you know, we, we sound shouty and angry when we're actually just saying we're doing this because we believe our God loves us and <laughs> he has the best plans for us. But it is tricky, isn't it, communicating some of those truths? Yeah, no, I think it is tricky. And I wouldn't want to say it's easy to be different to our world because it's not. It's costly. But we should expect it to be costly. The New Testament tells us it will be costly and tells us that we won't fit in. It really is, are we storing up our treasure in heaven? Where is, where is our heart? Is it with Christ seated in the heavenly places? Is that where we belong? That's our home. Then living here and being different will make a whole lot more sense and will give us clarity about how we need to be different. And actually, we serve our world if we are different. If we go with the world how are they going to hear the good news of the Saviour? Now, I agree with you. We have to be wise in the way that we do that. But we don't serve our world by silencing God's word. We serve our world by being distinctive messengers of the wonderful message of salvation. Now, yes, we don't always get it right. And I think sometimes we need to say, I'm sorry. I could have said that better. But in the same token... It's God's work and he can use even clunky things that we say to bring honour to him. So I think better to do the clunky and just get on with it. Be open to feedback and criticism, but really just be thoroughly above anything else, just thoroughly convinced about the goodness of God's word and the truth of it as the first thing. It's a question of your heart at that point.
Claire, thank you for that. Now, I know you've been a Christian for decades now. <laughs> Tell me, what is keeping you standing firm and growing as a Christian at the moment? I think it is just the sheer realisation that without Jesus, I have nothing. It's really Jesus or nothing. I mean, I can't put it really any more simply than that, which is if you take away absolutely everything, in the end, the only thing that counts is Jesus. And one of the kindnesses that God can do for us in struggles and when things perhaps don't go the way that we'd hoped that they would is that you're forced to think, what do I choose? Do I choose this or do I choose Christ? And I often say to myself, it's the little recording in my head, I choose Christ because without him, you lose everything. That's what gets me out of bed. That's what rebukes me and refines me. I want to be like Jesus. And it's what helps me to keep overcoming the setbacks. You mess up one day. No, I choose Christ. You get out there again the next day. Yes, you didn't do it right. You don't do things perfectly, but you have a perfect saviour. And so trusting him as my perfect saviour, what, what we all want, I take it, as Christian people is we all want to be faithful servants of Christ. I mean, what better summation of our lives could there be than that we've really, we've poured ourselves out for Christ, even if no one else here knows it. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It's God's judgment that counts, not what other people think. Thank you so much, Claire. I really appreciate your time. I've appreciated talking with you and thank you so much for being on the Lydia Project this afternoon. Thanks, Tori. Lovely to be here with you. God bless. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Lydia Project. We would love you to share this episode with others, whether that be by word of mouth, social media or leaving a review on iTunes. You can find us on most platforms using the handle at TLPCWCW. Special thanks goes to our platform host, the Gospel Coalition Australia. Music is Wholesome 7 by Dave Depper and voiceover is by me, Jennifer Mary.